God's word beginning in Luke 13, verse 10 says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to get water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from his bond from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and what till I shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray. Lord, we know the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. We ask that you would now speak through your word. Lord, would you encourage the faint-hearted? Would you rebuke the idle? Would you help the weak? Through your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, many years ago, a man of almost worldwide reputation accepted an invitation to speak to a church. Since the man was so well known, they were considering, well, who should host him at their home? Finally, it was decided he should stay at the wealthiest and most influential man's house of that congregation. Well, later on the night he was supposed to arrive, a knock came on the door of that house. And the woman of the home opened the door and saw someone who looked almost beggarly, someone who looked poor. And she said, well, may I help you? And she said, well, he said, well, I was supposed to stay here tonight. And she said, well, you must have the wrong address. Maybe it's across the street, but it's not here. We're expecting someone really important tonight. And the man left and went across the street and knocked there. And they too politely but firmly said, this is not the place for you. And so the man left. Well, the next morning to the Woman's shame and utter horror, that was the speaker who was to be there. She had turned away the important man because he didn't come in the way she expected him to come. She expected someone famous to come looking, well, rich and famous, but he didn't. He didn't come in ostentatious show, but in humility. You know, a problem occurs in life when we make what our expectations of what a person or a situation will be like when we demand it has to be that way rather than letting reality affect our thoughts. Well, this morning Jesus talks to religious leaders and he acts in a way that they do not expect. And due to their expectations of what the Messiah will be, they again harden their hearts against him. You know, they've already determined what this Messiah will be like. They've determined how they should be acting And Jesus is not like that. So he cannot be the Messiah. And yet we'll see things are not always what you expect. 
Now Luke is masterfully weaving this story in because back in chapter 12, verse 54, he warned them of being the type of people who could see the clouds, who could feel the wind and know what the weather's like, but not be able to look and see all the actions that Jesus did and realize he's the Messiah. And then in the verses right before this, he talked about how they had denied this, and yet Jesus used this illustration of a tree that they'll give him one more year. He'll dig up around it. He'll put fertilizer on it so that it might produce fruit. And so will this extra digging and fertilizer produce fruit of repentance in these men and women's lives? Well, we'll find out. But as we go through this, Luke shows three amazing truths. First, in verses 10 through 13, open-eyed compassion. Second, verses 14 through 17, closed-hearted legalism. And then lastly, 18 through 21, the small but powerful kingdom. Now, Jesus has been out teaching in the open air, and all of chapter 12 was this sermon, this conversation with people out in the fields. But now, on the Sabbath, he is back teaching in a synagogue. This wasn't a random event for Jesus, because if you look at Luke 4.16, it says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus' regular habit, his pattern, his custom was every week on the Sabbath to gather with God's people. Every Sabbath wasn't a 50-50 chance of, well, what did I do yesterday, and I'm pretty tired, or what's going on today? I don't know, I've got to weigh my options and see if I'm going to gather. No, Jesus' regular pattern was to go and be with God's people. And as followers of Christ, I think we should follow him in this example. You know, for reasons I don't fully understand, in the U.S., gathering with believers as a habit is not something that people encourage anymore. It's sure, if you want to, that's good, and definitely not opposed to it, but something I should do? Well, that, isn't that legalism? Isn't that saying that we have to do these things? Well, couldn't it be that we get to do these things? And then it should be a joy, like it was a joy for Jesus every Lord's Day to be with God's people. And may it be a joy for us. Well, while he's teaching, Jesus is in this synagogue, and a woman with a disabling spirit comes in the room. Now, this is only one of two occasions where someone's physical condition is said to have satanic influence behind that. And it's important to realize that because not every physical thing you deal with is healed by casting out a demon. At times it may be that way, but often it's not. Admit, this is one of those Job-like conditions where this woman seems to have been allowed by God to be oppressed by Satan in a physical way. And her situation is horrible. For 18 years, this woman has been bent over, unable to straighten up. You just imagine how hard that would be if you can't straighten your back. You want to have a conversation, but you're bent way over like this, so you kind of have to turn your head to see them. You want to eat, and you have to constantly bring the food up. And all of life is constant pain and trouble. And not just the problem, but she'd been having this for 18 years. You know, I'm annoyed when I have a cold for two days. This is 18 years of this disabling back issue. You think of how long 18 years is. 
18 years ago, everyone under college age had not been born. 18 years ago, we didn't even know what the word smartphone meant. And yet for 18 years, this woman has been living with this suffering. And it's supposed to bring out the sympathy and compassion of everyone there. Well, notice Jesus sees this woman and he calls out to her. In other words, Jesus is taking the initiative. The woman didn't come to him, but Jesus sees her and reaches out to her. He doesn't wait back and go, well, look, if she wants my help, I'm glad to give it, but she better come ask. Jesus is looking. He's seeing how can I show compassion? And that should make us back up and ask, do I have to be asked for help? Do I kind of wait back, maybe even seeing someone in need and kind of look away and hope they don't see me and, oh, oh, hi. Oh, do you need some help? Sure, yeah, I guess I can help you out. Now, every parent, and especially moms, know what I'm talking about. The house seems like it's constant pandemonium. There's not silence anywhere. You can't retreat. You cannot have a moment of silence. Even in the restroom, it seems like the hands are coming under the doors trying to get you. There's always noise except except when you say, all right, let's fold the laundry. And it seems like you live in a ghost town. You wonder if tumbleweeds are going across your living room. And no one would know a child lives there except the pictures on the wall and the laundry because where did everyone go? Laundry! Silence. Where did they go? And yet Jesus is so different. He doesn't wait. He doesn't have to be called. Hey, can you help me? Jesus looks. And as soon as he sees a need, he reaches out with words and actions. Jesus has open-eyed compassion. And so Jesus tells her, Woman, you have been healed of your disability. He puts his hand on her and she immediately straightens up. No chiropractor, no surgery, just the voice and touch of Jesus. No, go get an MRI first so we can figure out what's going on. No, go take these pills. No, why don't you try physical therapy for a couple weeks? No, hey, let's try traction. Let's try all these things and then we'll see what's going on in a month. He speaks and there's immediate and total healing. And you can just imagine, even if we didn't have these verses, how does the woman respond? She rejoices. She glorifies God. You know, sadly, I know many of you have physical things that bother you. And if someone could come in just one word, it's gone. You could breathe. Or you never had another kidney stone. Or your leg. Or we could go through all of the issues that we have in here. It's gone. You would rejoice. And this woman, 18 years, immediately, I mean, you could just imagine her. She's going, hey, look, I could touch my toes. Hey, look, look. She's doing all this stuff. Ah, God healed me. And she is praising God. Even her words are showing this was not some early magical or chiropractic trick that Jesus knew. Only the power of God brought this woman healing, and so she praises him. And so here, Jesus, he's digging up around the tree, so to speak. He's spreading the fertilizer around going, you've seen more evidence. Are you going to respond with faith and repentance? This healing, it wasn't some unobjective, well, I've had this pain in my side, and oh, it's gone. It was not, 
some woman planted in the crowd who comes up that no one knew. This woman lived in this town for 18 years. Everyone in the town knew who she was. This was not some, hey, I think she's been pulling this 18 years for when Jesus comes in. This was a good plan. They knew these are the type of women that their aunts, their moms would go, oh, yeah, we used to run and play together. Oh, she used to be so great, so sad. Everyone knew, and Jesus clearly shows that he speaks, and Satan and nature listens to his voice. So how will they respond? We'll look at that next, but here we see when Jesus sees hurting and suffering, he responds with compassion. What do you see? Now, I don't mean, merely mean what do your eyes look at, but what do they see? Recently, our family has started watching this show that involves a detective who, for various reasons, doesn't always get, on with, get along with the chief of police. And yet the chief of police is clear this detective does really good investigative work. As he's talking one day with one of his co-workers, he says, I don't get it. When we look at the exact same crime scene, we look at the exact same facts, but he sees stuff I don't even see. Just looking at what does this mean? So what do you see as you walk into a room? Do you see the person alone, feeling isolated and having a bad time, or is all you see the group that's having fun, and I hope they want me to be in their fun too? What do you see? You know, if we're not careful, we'll no longer even be able to see, so to speak, the hurt and lonely. Sure, they're still there, but what we want to see has caused them to fade into the background. They're like the alarms in our life that we've slowly tuned out. This last week I got home and I was doing a couple things in my car and I got out and all of a sudden I was just about to shut the door when I go, oh, that beeping's telling me my keys are still in the ignition. I had tuned it out. I'd heard it so many times that eh, it's just this background noise. Don't even listen. We can do the same things in our life. Yeah, we see those people, but we don't really see them. They're not grabbing our heart's attention that we want to go talk to them. We want to go help them. We want to intercede however we can. We can tune it out. But God has not tuned us out. God sees and he looks on us with compassion. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Isaiah 49.13 declares, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into sings, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. I know I've had times in my life where I've asked, and I know some of you have asked, why does God continue to allow this to happen? Why is this suffering still going on? And we see from this story and the other truths of God's word that it's not because God has forgotten to be compassionate. You know, I can't give specific answers to specific situations, but we know from Jesus, from God's word, that it's not that God has ceased to be compassionate. And so though it's a trite saying, can be trite, there is so much truth to the saying when you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. You may not be able to understand why is he allowing this now, but you can trust him. He is still 
a compassionate God. His compassion, it didn't lead him only to heal this one woman temporarily from a horrible condition. It led him to a cross. The utter pain and horror so that he could show you compassion. So that he could bring you from death to life. Trust God's open-eyed compassion. And yet it can be hard to trust God's open-eyed compassion because sometimes the people who are supposed to be representing that are anything but compassionate. And that's what we see next in verses 14 through 17 because the religious leaders, they have closed-hearted legalism. Because not everyone in this synagogue is rejoicing. In fact, the religious ruler, he is angry, the synagogue ruler. Now this man was kind of like a worship MC, you might say, or we would say worship leader. It was his role in the synagogue to make sure that the worship went according to the right time and the right order and the way it should. So if someone was going to speak up and say, Jesus, what you did today was not right, this is the man who would do it. And what he's saying is not necessarily strictly against the Old Testament. Basically, he's saying, look, there's a Sabbath day and Jesus shouldn't have healed on it. And thus he says to the crowd, notice he doesn't address Jesus, he addresses the crowd, look, if you want to be healed, come get healed on another day. There's six days you can get healed, but not today. He's basically taking the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So he's taking that and he's saying, we shouldn't have done this. Jesus shouldn't have been healed and you shouldn't be coming for it. However, that is not at all what Jesus, God meant or Jesus meant when they gave the fourth commandment. You know, only the legalistic followers of God have to nail everything down with specific rules. You know, the rabbis had come up with 39 types or forms of labor that were prohibited. One of their sayings said, one who wove only one strand, sewed only one stitch, and wrote but one alphabet letter was not yet working. So if you needed two letters written or two stitches, just make sure you had a friend next to you. you know, there's always a way to work around these things if you really wanted, because we're not working, and yet that's not the heart of what God had given them. So Jesus responds to the man, verse 15, and he speaks to all the religious leaders who are sharing the sentiment. He calls them hypocrites. What are you doing? Don't you understand? This is not what God requires. God's clear. He requires justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with him. And yet they care more about keeping their understanding of the rules than kindness and humility. And so Jesus asks them a question. Look, wouldn't you, if you had an ox, untie it on the Sabbath or a donkey, untie it and go let them eat and drink and of course the answer is yes they would allow that in fact in their rules that was allowed and yet though those animals were bound something more important than an animal was bound and made free because this isn't just an animal it's a person it's a daughter of abraham the daughters of abraham are just as important jesus is showing us the sons of abraham and yet though this is true there's the sad reality that the religious leader rather than rejoicing oh, 18 years i'm so excited what god has done for you i know how much that's been plaguing your life instead in anger he's mad that jesus did this on the sabbath 
you know, this man's legalistic view of God drove him to care for an animal more than a human. You know, in our society, we have to guard against this same thing, that our love for animals doesn't transcend our love for the image of God around us. You know, we as a society often treat our pets better than humans. In 1994, as a country, we spent $17 billion on pets. In 25 years, that has gone up now to us spending $75 billion a year on our pets. That's more than four times an increase without a four times the increase in pets. You know, things that in the past would have been luxuries for pets are now commonplace. Now, as with many issues, there's not a right or wrong here. There's no clear line in the sand of you've spent too much on a pet. Pets are wonderful things. They're gifts from God, and we should and can enjoy them. However, I've known people who see a need of a human and may pull out a $5 bill, and then they'll go and buy hundreds of luxuries or toys for their pets. Again, the issue is one of priorities. Are you more generous and eager to give to God's image? Or for animals? Or do we treat animals as more important than humans? In April of 2015, The Guardian read in an article that began with these words. Two fatal police shootings unfolded within 14 hours, both in lakeside towns in the same corner of northwest Idaho. The first victim was Janetta Riley, a troubled 35-year-old pregnant woman shot dead by police as she brandished a knife outside a hospital in the town of Sandpoint. Her death barely ruffled the tight-knit rural community, which mostly backed the officers who were cleared of any wrongdoing before the case was even closed. The second shooting in a nearby town sparked uproar. There were rallies, protests, sinister threats against the police officer responsible, and a viral campaign that spread well beyond the town and drew an apology from the mayor. The killing was ruled unjustified, and the police chief introduced new training for his officers. The victim of a second shooting, a dog named Arfi, who also seemed to be attacking an officer. Now, my point again is not that we should be fine with a police officer shooting a dog. That's not my point at all. It's that we've lost a sense of priority. For the woman in the similar situation, not even an apology was given to the husband. For the dog owner, he was later awarded $80,000. The Man who shot the dog was demoted and had his pay cut. Now, maybe those things should have happened. But what about the woman? Do we get more worked up about animal rights than human rights? Again, maybe we should care about animal rights. But where is our priorities? We should, as Christians especially, be spending way more that people might know Christ, that the poor might be alleviated than we would ever spend on our pets. Now, in pointing out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, we see in verse 17 that it caused them to be ashamed. They'd clearly been shown in the wrong. And yet here, this is showing that though Jesus has proverbially dug up around the tree, spread the fertilizer, hoping that they would bear the fruit of repentance, no fruit was born. Rather, they harden their hearts again. And yet the people, they rejoiced at the glorious things Jesus was doing. 
Notice it didn't say glorious thing. It's not just focusing on this one event, but all that Jesus has done is leading them to rejoice and praise God. And yet we can be thankful that today there are no longer religious people who are so committed to keeping the things the way they are that they'd be fine when something is wrong. Well, if only that were so. But the reality that we have to realize is that many people use the cloak of religion to hide their other motivations. Like in Jesus' day, there can be rampant hypocrisy, and there is rampant hypocrisy in the church, even evangelical churches. You know, sadly, many evangelicals have lost sight of what's most important, what has the most power in what our primary mission is. Our primary mission is not politics. Our primary mission is people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet many evangelicals are more passionate and more concerned about the political views of their neighbors than they are about their religious views. It breaks their heart more as people are becoming socialist than that they're becoming secularist. They're more concerned about who is going to be in office than if someone comes to Christ. Now, we should care about people. And sadly, I think we can even say that in evangelicals circles, we have been so concerned to keep President Trump at office that at times we have not been as clear as we should be. 20 years ago, when President Clinton had actions that were immoral, we spoke quite loudly as a group. Your personal life, your words matter. And yet I, we did not hear that same message as loud and clear when we've seen and heard of things that our current president has done. Now, this is not a pro-Trump statement. This is not an anti-Trump statement. This is merely a let's speak and live forth the convictions of God's word, God's word, even if it hurts our political party or even if it helps. Because if we only speak up when it seems to help our political party, then we appear just like these hypocrites. That we'll use God's word to keep our system in place. But when it doesn't help us, we're glad to just sit quietly on the sidelines. And so we need to be focused on what God calls us to do, whether it hurts us in other ways. And yet, people might say, well, look, this is horrible. What will happen to our country if we don't keep the right people in? This is dangerous. We have to keep power. And yet, as we see next, our hope for power is not in politics, but in the gospel of the king who came to bring his kingdom. We see that last in verses 18 through 21. Because the small but powerful kingdom will grow. Here, Jesus tells them what the kingdom of God will be like. Now, it's kind of odd. Well, why does he now tell this based of what just happened? Because if you look at verse 18, he says, he said, therefore. So therefore, it's based on what happened before this. Well, Jesus just said he'd cast out Satan. So Jesus is showing, well, what is my kingdom going to look like now that Satan's kingdom is being removed? He also needs to say these things because the religious leaders, they knew. They knew exactly what God's kingdom was going to look like when it came. When God's Messiah comes, he'll have a sword in his hand and Rome will be kicked out 
and Israel would be restored to the glorious power and splendor in the nations. And yet that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to defeat a physical political enemy, but the spiritual enemy and its effects. Thus, as we've gone through Luke's gospel, we've seen him healing the sick, freeing the demon-possessed, bringing the dead back to life, and forgiving people of their sins. Jesus will decisively conquer the enemy, not with an uplifted sword and a golden crown, but he'll defeat the enemy by being nailed to a cross, wearing a crown of thorns. Yet this is not defeat, but it's the way that the kingdom will grow. And so Jesus illustrates this with two parables. First, showing the powerful external growth of the kingdom, and then the second one showing the powerful internal growth. But first, in verse 19, Jesus says his kingdom is like a mustard seed, which a man put in his garden and then it grew into this tree that even the birds of the air could come and put their nest in its branches. Now in Jewish circles, if you wanted to talk about something proverbially small, you talked about the mustard seed. That was their smallest of the small. And Jesus says, look, when you think about the kingdom of God, it's something really small. And yet, it will eventually grow into an enormous tree. And Jesus' analogy here is actually a little bit of a twist. Because their normal image for smallness was a mustard seed, but their normal image for greatness and power was a cedar tree. And I think Jesus is here even showing by his twisting of the metaphor that what you expect is not always the way it will be. You expect me to come in this big militaristic campaign, and yet I'm going to come like a mustard tree. Yes, my kingdom's going to mightily expand, but it doesn't begin in the way you expect. And yet sitting 2,000 years later, almost 2,000 years, is that really true? Is God's kingdom expanding? Our country seems to be moving away from God. Not just in our perceptions, not just what we hear people say, but even in numbers. Just this month, Pew Research released a study showing that in the last decade alone, 12% less people in the U.S. now claim to be Christian. At the same time, those who describe themselves atheist or agnostic or nothing in particular rose 9%, now 26% of the population. Beyond that, the Western world seems bound and determined to remove every trace, every thought of God from our thinking and morals. Yet, let's get our thinking off the U.S. and the Western world and look at the whole globe. There is about 4,000 a year people leave the church. About 16,000 people a year join the church in Africa. Though the church is shrinking in the West, In Asia, in Africa, in South America, it's growing. In John Piper's book, Desiring God, he has a chart showing the number of Christians based to the whole population. And when Christ came, it was like one, two, thousands. And every century he would show after that, the number keeps getting smaller and smaller, the number of Christians in comparison to the rest of the world. God's kingdom is and will continue to grow with external power. We may not always see it in our country, 
There may even be times where it does go down, but you can see the massive growth of God's kingdom externally. But then in verse 20, he shows that it grows internally powerfully as well. This time he says it's like leaven, which a woman kneaded into three measures of flour. Now each measure is about five gallons, and thus three of them is 15 gallons or 50 pounds. This is a huge amount of flour. And yet, one little thing of leaven radically changes everything else in it. Every part of flour will be influenced, permeated, and changed. Again, something small will change everything dramatically and powerfully. And even in my own life, though I would love to see God's kingdom more fully lived out, I can thankfully look back five years or 15 years and see how the leaven has worked out in the more areas of my life internally that God is working and changing me. And so God's kingdom often comes in ways we don't expect. King David, who is he to be made the king? When Samuel came to anoint the next king, his dad didn't even call him in from the fields. Oh, it would never be the youngest, not the shepherd boy. Yet God's kingdom comes in ways we don't expect. When God sent his son, the local King Herod didn't even know he was there. He had to be told by foreigners, by the Magi, the king of kings just came. What? And they had to search. God's king comes in a manger, in a small town, and the local king doesn't even know about it? Yes. God's kingdom comes in ways we don't expect. And what is it that is our power? What's the power of the kingdom? Well, it's not going to be on keeping our grips on the judiciary in the U.S. It's not by making sure we have the right people in the right positions of power in our country. Our power today, as it has always been, is the cross of Christ. Because it's in defeat that we have victory. It's not what you expect. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power that took a Christ-hating, murdering man named Saul and transformed him into a church-planting lover of people named Paul. How could that be changed? Only by the gospel working inwardly powerfully and then externally powerfully. If you go and read the supposed experts in church marketing, what do you need? Well, you need energy. You need a great group of people. You need a lot of startup capital. And you need some research into the dynamics of your community. Well, none of those are bad in and of themselves. But that's not the essence of the power and growth of God's kingdom. One man I mentioned before, but I'll use him here as an example as well. You may have heard me talk about Mez McConnell. He grew up in Scotland in a horrible home. His mother abandoned him. And to say that his stepmother abused him is not strong enough at all. Both his parents, father and stepmom, were alcoholics, and child services often had to take him away. By the time he was a teenager, he'd been in and out of child protective services numerous times. He was an angry, violent young man. 
And yet some Christians came where he was playing soccer and started playing soccer with them. And as they started to interact with them, what did they do? Well, Mez and his friends beat up their cars and broke their windows. So what did those Christians do? Well, they came back the next week and shared the gospel again. And as Mez was an angry young man, he ended up getting in trouble and going to prison, and these Christians continued to pursue him. And then when he was let out of prison, he needed a place to stay or they wouldn't release him. And they said, you can stay with us. And Mez eventually, after many years, came to Christ. And now many years later, he's a church planter. Planted eight churches in Scotland's poorest communities. And you have to think the first time those men went and played and they had their windows broken out, they could have been thinking, why are we doing this? We need to reach people with influence. We need to reach people with money and power. That's how we're going to reach England. We're going to reach Scotland with the gospel. We need to reach those people, not a broken man. And what can, we can't change this guy. He's so broken. And yet the power of the gospel changed his life and has led to much intensive and extensive growth. And even in Jesus, you can imagine the skeptics of Jesus' day, looking at him going, Jesus, what are you doing? You're going to lose the popularity of the uh, Jewish authorities to heal a woman? She doesn't have any power. we got to get rid of Rome. you got to stay friends with the elite. Jesus, don't be doing this. This is a waste of time. And yet Jesus shows what's needed is mustard seeds, leaven of love of speaking the truth, of open-eyed compassion to anyone who is in our midst. You know, Jesus shows deeds of love and mercy, proclamation of his word. That's where gospel power exists. It may look empty and void, but it's the message of the cross. It's the preaching backed with gospel living that values people. That's our power. Not who we have in certain positions in our country. And so may we go forth this morning with hope in the gospel. Yes, things may look desperate in some places in our country, but the true power has not changed. We can still go forth radically in love, even for the lowest in society, because the leaven will get worked in there. The seeds of mustard will be planted and so that God's kingdom may grow. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it's not going to be by our might or our power, but by you and through your spirit. And so Lord, we ask, would you work in us? Would you work through us in our homes, in our community, in our nation, that people might come to know you, the one and only true and living God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.